Section 18 of the Curtis Aviation Book by Glenn Curtis and Augustus Post. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 4 The Real Future of the Aeroplane. Chapter 5 The Aeroplane as Applied to the Army by Captain Paul W. Beck, U.S. Army. Note In July 1912, Captain Beck was granted by the War Department the title of Military Aviator, the first time that any American has been given this title, which implies finished skill in both aviation and military tactics, and for which all the Army aviators are to qualify. Augustus Post. End note. Whenever science discovers anything new or startling, such a discovery is immediately tested by practical men of commercial or professional life to ascertain whether or not it can be applied to their business or profession. In civil life, these tests are to determine whether or not this new discovery can be applied to cheapen production or benefit mankind in any other way. In the Army, two tests are always applied— First, to determine whether or not this discovery can be used to kill the other fellow, and second, to determine whether or not it can be used to prevent the other fellow from killing us. These are the tests which have been applied to the aeroplane by the military. Let us see how these heavier-than-air machines have responded to these tests. Can aeroplanes be used to kill the other fellow? Our problem here is not ethical, but practical. It is not based on the determinations of the Hague Peace Convention, but upon the actual capabilities of the machine from a physical standpoint, considered apart from humanitarian principles. In other words, we do not here discuss whether or not it is ethically right to use aeroplanes aggressively, but whether or not aeroplanes are mechanically capable of such use. The Army does not disturb itself with ethical questions until they become rules of international law, and then it only considers them as being binding in their actual observance under the conditions imposed by such law. Meantime, the Army, by preparation in time of peace, seeks to gain the fullest possible measure of information along the lines of investigation necessitated by the mechanical side of the question. Considered from this standpoint, the question is repeated, can aeroplanes be used to kill the other fellow? Well, where may we expect to meet this other fellow? He will be armed, of course. He will be on the ground, on the water, or in the air. Wherever he may be, we must get close enough to see him, while we must remain far enough away to keep him from having a decidedly better chance of hitting us than we have of hitting him. If he is on the ground or on the water, we must fly over him. If he is in the air, we must maneuver our aircraft so as to gain an advantageous position over him, one where we can shoot our machine guns or rifles while he is unable to use his similar weapons against us. That is where skill as an aviator and superiority of speed, climbing power, and control of the machine will play a prominent part in deciding the supremacy of the air. From this standpoint, the location of the enemy can be reduced to two cases. One, when the enemy is on the ground or on the water, 
and the other when he is in the air. Against him in the first case, we must use projectiles dropped from on high. These may be shrapnel, explosive shells, or simply large, thinly encased masses of high explosive, depending on whether we are attacking individuals or animals in groups, gun emplacements, bridges, etc., or important strategical or tactical points, such as arsenals, barracks, or parts of a defensive line. Against the enemy in the skies, we must use some small machine gun or rifle, in an endeavor to brush him aside and allow our own information-gathering aeroplanes to perform their functions unmolested. But we are not progressing. Can aeroplanes be used to kill the other fellow? Well, assuming him to be located as we have assumed him to be, there are several other questions which must be answered before we can clinch the main issue. Can a man act as aviator and at the same time manipulate the mechanisms that may be found necessary to the killing of the other fellow? If not, can an aeroplane be built that will carry at least two men, one as the aviator and the other as the manipulator of the death-dealing apparatus, and at the same time carry enough extra weight, that is, fuel, to keep aloft long enough to accomplish the necessary flight, and also to carry the projectiles and dropping device. Yes, the two passengers may be estimated to weigh 300 pounds, the dropping device may be estimated to weigh not to exceed 50 pounds, at least three known types of aeroplane can carry 650 pounds of weight for a continuous flight of 200 miles in length. That leaves 250 pounds that can be devoted to the carrying of projectiles. So far, the coast seems clear, but a small storm appears in the offing. Can this 250 pounds, or any considerable part of it, be dropped from a moving aeroplane without disturbing its equilibrium to such an extent as to render the machine unmanageable? Any weight can be dropped from the center of lift without disturbing the equilibrium. Thirty-eight pounds have been dropped from one machine from a point three feet in front of the center of lift without disturbing the equilibrium. Admitting that the necessary weight can be carried and can be dropped, we next encounter the highly important question, what can we hit from a height of, say, 3,500 feet? At this point, the problem becomes one of pure fire control, and is directly analogous to target practice in our seacoast defenses. Since the aeroplane is moving forward at a definite rate of speed at the instant of dropping the projectile, it follows that there is an initial velocity given to the projectile. This velocity is dependent upon the forward speed of the machine, and varies with it. Gravity exerts an influence on the drop of the projectile, which influence increases the speed of drop as the altitude from which the shell is dropped increases. The direction and force of the wind currents through which the projectile must fall are variable, and they all exert influences tending to cause the projectile to swerve from its original course to a degree dependent upon their strength and the thickness of each stratum of air. The size of the target and, if it be animals or men, the direction and rate of movement of the target are all factors to a successful hit. 
practice has shown us that the principal factors are the forward speed of the machine and the altitude the variations due to wind currents through which the projectile must pass in falling are negligible the only targets to be chosen will have to be sufficiently large and immobile to warrant an assumption that they can be hit aerial target practice will never degenerate to the sniping of individuals it will be directed against ships small boats armies cavalry quartermaster and field artillery trains and similar large bodies of men or animals or against the strategic and tactical points alluded to above the problem then simmers itself down to a more or less accurate solution of a method for determining the forward speed of the machine and its altitude which with a suitable set of tables and suitable mechanical devices for releasing the projectile at the proper instant will produce a reasonably good target practice for some time the solution of the forward speed of an aeroplane seemed impracticable it has now been solved by the simple use of a telescope mounted on a gimbal so as to maintain its horizontal position and movable vertically along a graduated arc by setting the telescope to read an angle of forty-five degrees and snapping a stopwatch on an object which lies in the line of sight of the telescope and then swinging the telescope so as to point vertically downward we can by snapping the stopwatch a second time as the sighting point again comes into the field of vision ascertain the exact time it has taken the machine to cover the distance measured by the forty-five degrees of arc our altitude is known by reading a barometer we then have two known angles of a right triangle and one known side namely the altitude by a set of tables already made out we can determine our forward speed now all of this is done as a preliminary to actually dropping the projectile after we have the forward speed and the altitude we simply consult another set of previously prepared tables and read from those tables an angle this angle shows the proper point of drop to hit another point on the ground somewhere in advance of the aeroplane after picking the angle out of the table we set our telescope to read the known angle and when the line of sight produced is on the objective we release or trip the projectile this has actually been done now i ask you the question can an aeroplane be used to kill the other fellow can an aeroplane be used to prevent the other fellow from killing us of course it is much superior to santa anna's mule for purposes of rapid departure from the scene of hostilities but that is hardly the test we apply it is on the other hand inferior as a shield to the ordinary breastworks constructed by armies in the field but again that is not precisely the test to be applied the most effective way in which we can keep the other fellow from killing us is to find out where he is what he is doing and how he proposes to accomplish his to us reprehensible to him laudable object accordingly we apply the information test to the aeroplane can we use it to gather information of the enemy his lines of communication his lines of defenses his probable lines of advance or retreat his rail and water communications his artillery positions and gun emplacements and a host of other things all of which tend to produce success or failure in battle 
In other words, can we use the aeroplane to prevent the enemy from killing us? In order to make use of information, there must be two distinct steps which must be taken. First, it must be gathered. Second, it must be communicated to the proper officers for transmission to the commanding general in the field. No information is of value until it is communicated to an officer competent to act upon it. This problem of information is then divided into two parts, the getting and the transmitting. In getting information, we must at once settle just how far the aeroplane will be available. There is a certain class of information, that is, that concerning the roadbeds over which an army must move, the fords it must cross, the bridges it must travel over, the hills and valleys that might afford shelter for an offensive force, or may be used defensively, the location, extent, thickness, and amount of underbrush in woods, and much other intimate local knowledge that is of great and indispensable value to a commanding officer in the field. Such information can be gathered only from the ground. An aeroplane could be of use in such gathering only as a means for transporting the topographical sketchers quickly from point to point, allowing them sufficient time to do their work before again taking the air. Also, an aeroplane would be of but little use in locating small bodies of the enemy. Where the aeroplane would begin to be of use, however, is in the locating of the main body of the enemy, his defenses, his artillery positions, in determining the outline of his position, the natural or artificial boundaries which cover and protect his flanks, his main arteries of supply, the strong and weak points of his line of defense, etc. To accomplish these results, the aeroplane must fly at a sufficient elevation to render difficult the hitting of a vital part of the machine or the aviator by hostile rifle or artillery fire. While the modern rifle in use in our army will fire a ball about 3,500 yards straight in the air, it is generally accepted among aviators that an aeroplane would be practically safe, save from a chance shot, at 3,500 feet. Of course, there is a large chance that if enough rifles are directed at an aeroplane for a long enough time, the machine or its operator would be hit at this altitude. But war is not a game of croquet, and the men who would man these machines in war would stand ready to take the risks demanded by the exigencies of the service. The proper machine to act as a gatherer of information is one that can carry a pilot, a passenger, and a wireless outfit. It is proposed to equip all information-gathering machines with wireless, and to this end a special set has been devised and is being tested out at the U.S. Army Signal Corps Aviation School. That a wireless will be a success, there is no doubt, for certain simple experiments with crude apparatus have been already tried out with remarkable success. I have said that military aviators propose to fly at about 3,500 feet while seeking information. Perhaps this will be increased to about 5,000 feet if it can be demonstrated that the reconnaissance officer can clearly discern from that height the points which are of military value. This officer will be aided by powerful field glasses, a camera, and sketching case. 
and he will have at hand a wireless outfit which he can use in sending back whatever he may ascertain of value. Upon reporting back to the officer who sent him out, he will turn over his sketches and photographs. It is thought that in this way very complete and valuable data will be available. From an aeroplane or balloon, the ground presents a very different appearance than it does from our usual man's-eye view. It takes time and practice to determine just what the different strange-looking objects are, let alone to determine their relative sizes and distances. On this account we have concluded that the reconnaissance officer and the pilot must both be trained at the same time. Since this is the case, and since there is a decided mental and physical strain connected with long-continued flight, we have gone further and concluded that both officers who fly in the aeroplane must be pilots, and both must be trained in reconnaissance duty. In this way each can relieve or spell the other. There is much more to this than the mere acting as an aerial chauffeur. To be a successful military aviator, a man must be an excellent cross-country flyer. He must be an expert topographer and sketcher. He must understand photography, and he must be a practical wireless operator, as well as have a knowledge of the theory of wireless. Above all, he must be trained in military art, that most elusive of subjects. By that we mean that he must understand the military significance of what he sees. He must understand the powers, limitations, and functions of the three great arms, infantry, cavalry, and field artillery, whether used in combination or separately. He must know major and minor tactics to determine the worth or uselessness of a position. He must be able quickly and accurately to reduce his observations to a written report, in order that the information gained may be of immediate use to his chief. For all of these reasons we have concluded that we must rely on commissioned officers of the regular army or organized militia, trained in time of peace to fulfill their functions in time of war. We cannot place dependence on civilian aviators, for they have not had the training along the highly technical and specialized lines that are necessary, we cannot rely on enlisted men of the army for the same reason. There is another class of flyers that will undoubtedly be of use in wartime. These are the men to drive fast-flying single-passenger machines for speedy messenger service between detached bodies of troops, or to drive the heavy ammunition or food-carrying aeroplanes to relieve a besieged place. These may well be chosen from the ranks of the civilian volunteers, who would, without a doubt, flock to our colors and standards at the whistle of a hostile bullet. There is plenty of room in wartime for all of the aviators we can scrape together, be they civilian or military. Two new types of aeroplane have been alluded to in the last preceding paragraph, the fast-flying, quick-climbing racer and the slow-going, heavyweight carrier. We are of the opinion that there should be three types in all for military purposes. Of greatest importance and in greatest numbers, we should have the middle class of machines, those capable of staying in the air for at least three hours of continuous flight while carrying two men and 150 pounds extra of either wireless apparatus or machine gun and ammunition. Such a machine will climb 2,000 feet in 10 minutes, 
will travel above fifty miles an hour on the level, is perfectly easy to manage, and forms the backbone of the aerial fleet. One of these craft, acting as a convoy, armed with a Benet Mercier machine gun weighing about twenty pounds, and with ample ammunition, could sweep the skies clean of hostile aeroplanes, while its mate, carrying reconnaissance apparatus and two officers, could gather the information which the commanding general desires. The speed machine is for use as described above. The weight-carrying machine can carry about 6,000 rounds of ammunition at a trip. Rifle cartridges weigh about 100 pounds per 1,200 rounds. This machine could carry enough emergency rations on one trip to subsist 500 men for a day. It could make a speed of 40 miles per hour with this weight and in the course of a day could undoubtedly make several trips of succor, provided the sending point were within fifty miles of the besieged place, which is the usual case. And now, can an aeroplane be used to prevent the other fellow from killing us? This is a very fascinating subject as a whole. The field opened is almost limitless, but the greatest idea of all is that through this conquest of the air we are approaching more nearly to that much longed-for era of universal peace. Through the aeroplane and dirigible, man is effacing artificial barriers. He is bringing the rich closer to the poor, the powerful closer to the weak. No longer can unwise and selfish potentates, be they royal, democratic, or financial, send forth their armies to fight, while themselves resting safe and secure at home. The king in his palace, or the money baron on his private yacht, is in as much danger from these aircraft as is the high private in the muddy trenches at the front. That touches the selfish side of things. At any rate, while the aeroplane will probably do more to promote peace than has any previous discovery, we of the army are still busily engaged in finding out just what it will do in war. End of section 18. Recording by Maria Casper.